Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the co-creator of comics like The Good Asian and Infidel, and is writing DC's upcoming The Sandman Universe Presents The Dead Boy Detectives, Pornsock Pichet Show. Welcome! Hey, great. Thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll start with our, our first-time guest question. What are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Oh, God. Uh, okay, so I remember reading Amazing Spider-Man number 230, the second part of uh, Nothing Stops a Juggernaut. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And well, interestingly enough, like, I will remember some of my biggest mem- memories for comics would be comics I would love later on in life, but I hated when I first read. Because a lot of times it would be the hero having trouble beating the villain or <laughs> losing to the villain, all that kind of stuff. So, like, I distinctly remember the second part of Nothing Stop the Juggernaut, but I didn't like it because Spider-Man doesn't have, like, a decisive win over the juggernaut which mm-hmm. you know now i understand why but at the time like no you should beat everybody <laughs> um i think i think like you know some early issues of like uh stanley steve dick uh marvel tales which was reprinting stanley even steve dicko's Sp- sure. amazing spider-man i'd be like ah he loses i didn't like that or frank miller's daredevil i was like ah he doesn't win i don't like that mm-hmm. um but later on in my life those would be uh, comics i you know love and cherish uh so there's that there is, I don't remember the issue number, but Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, where they fight, um, I think it's it's not the Fatal Five, the League of Super Assassins, maybe? The... I think that's the one where Block is introduced. Mm-hmm. I think I think they're the League of Super Assassins. There's five, there's five of them. It, it, I, yeah. I, this was around the time where I feel like the Legion of Superheroes were constantly fighting other villain groups that were five in number. And I would always get them confused with the fatal five, <laughs> which, which they never were apparently. <laughs> uh, but the league of super villain, super assassins, I think was one of them. Uh, there was that one. And then uh, the first comic I really remember following was the Marvel tales reprint of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko's uh, amazing Spider-Man. And those, those first 20 issues are probably like the most influential thing on on my life it so much so that when like people started getting into harry potter Mm -hmm. i was like oh they have something that is equivalent to like what those issues amazing spider-man were because those were the first things i had ever read where the character kind of aged in real time and so you Mm -hmm. got to see him in high school then he became you know went to college and i still remember you know I want to say, I don't know which, the end of which issue, but uh, it's the one where it's a John Romita drawn issue. And he fights a Craven, but at the end of it, the Flash goes to Vietnam and and, yes. and Peter Parker has this whole thing about how like, wow, I can't believe I'm missing this guy who like made my life hell and like mm-hmm. how much life changes and all that kind of stuff. I I love that. That issue has is a special place in my heart because uh, there was an issue of Joe Kelly's Deadpool where- okay. Through some shenanigans, uh, Deadpool ends up in that issue of Amazing yeah. Spider-Man. Okay, and uh, like, yeah. So uh, that that from Joe Kelly's run is like one of my favorite issues, and and I'm actually so uh, my son is 11, and okay. as a project, we've sort of been going through. I have the first five volumes of the Essential Spider-Man, you know, the old okay, black okay. and white compendiums and so we're in like the 80s right now in terms of like amazing spider-man issues it's shambushima art right now it's post but it's still like we're in the good era he's at empire stake when stacy's there oh wow yeah i mean when you think about it like in in the scheme of things like spider-man had a low period but it wasn't that big because it went like you know stan lee was writing for 103 issues Mm -hmm. then it went straight to jerry conway and then I think it's only after Jerry Conway. I think it goes to like Denny O'Neill. Maybe that it kind of loses its way. And then, and then, but then, but like at two thirty-two, Roger Stern comes back, and like, and that's where it's like starts its like creative high point again. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, those are just great. It's a it's a great soap opera. It is. It absolutely yeah. is. And and two thirty-two, not not long after that Juggernaut issue that we started this whole conversation. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> Full circle. You're getting near the. First issue of Marvel Tales I remember buying off the rack, okay. which was, as it turned out, a reprint of 100, because it had this cover of 
the the Marvel Tales reprint had the cover of Spidey's head with the villains surrounding it. Yeah. Okay. And, and it becomes, you know, the end of that is the six armed Spider Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember that. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I had that. They did a uh, giant sized treasury with I think issues hundred and like one hundred and maybe to one two. Yeah. And so I remember yes. like skipping those issues because I had I got that treasury in a garage sale or something like that. Oh God! So Matt, what you're telling me is that in about 20 issues, it's going to be Morbin time. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. Just about there. It really is. <laughs> yeah, you know, every father dreads this day, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's time to teach you about Morbin. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, boy. But uh, so right now, your next big thing is the Sandman Universe Presents colon, The Dead Boy Detectives, which launches December 27th with artist Jeff Stokely and uh, colorist Mikel Muerto. Uh, Matt, as this is a Sandman book, I believe uh, of the two of us, you are the most legally obligated to read the solicit <laughs> text for the listeners. Charles Rowland and Edwin Payne have been detectives for decades and dead best friends even longer. But their investigation into a Thai American girl's disappearance from her Los Angeles home puts them on a collision course with a new and terrifying ghosts that could give even a dead boy detective nightmares, including bloodthirsty Krasue. Even scarier than the ghosts, though neither wants to admit it, the boys might be growing apart and perilously close by to the boys' adventure. Thessaly the witch finds herself held hostage by dangerous magics both a threat to her life and an insult to her ego that simply will not go unanswered. I love that. <laughs> now, Matt, did I read correctly that your boy, Matt Grendel Wagner, had a hand in creating these characters? Indeed he did. Uh, Sandman 25, the first appearance of the Dead Boys, is Wagner's one issue of Sandman proper. He did co-write uh, Sandman Midnight Theater, a oh. one-shot with Wesley Dodds encountering Dream that sort of bridges the gap in between Sandman and Sandman Mystery Theater, which was a Wagner Wagner written solely for the first half or so, then uh, Wagner and Steve Siegel for the back half with various artists, mostly Guy Davis. It's the first place I uh, encountered Guy Davis, too. But every few arcs, there's a a, a different artist, including uh, a great Michael Lark art yeah, arc in there. There is a good, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's also an annual in there that has a couple pages by Alex Ross, back when you could get, like, non-superhero Alex Ross, yeah. Yeah. Very nice, very nice. So, uh, Portsock, how did you get drawn into the uh, the Sandman universe for this uh, for this gig? I, I mean, it, it's a weird thing because I've been kind of been around the Sandman universe my entire career. I started mm -hmm. off as Vertigo working for Karen Berger. Sure. And so mm -hmm. I, I edited uh, one Sandman book, uh, the comics adaptation of Dream Hunt, Sandman Dream Hunters. And the way Neil works with everything Sandman is he's so closely involved that he would, you know, pitch, give his two cents and I would have a chance to sort of talk with him for that. So when, so the guys that, um, you know, when the guys at Black Label kind of came to me, and I've known Chris forever, it's just like they're thinking about it sort of expanding sort of the, the Sandman universe, and this opportunity became um, available. I kind of leaped it. I mean, Edwin and Charles are kind of my favorite characters out of the Sandman universe, so much so that, like, um, Children's Crusade number one, which is not their first appearance, but is their second appearance after mm -hmm. Sandman 25, was always one of my favorite Neil Gaiman comics. And it took me a while to realize, like, oh, I just love it because of these characters. Like, these characters are so great. And so the chance to sort of, you know, kind of take their story and, you know, and they're super popular characters. Uh, you know, they're, they're, there's an HBO Max show shooting, like, right now, mm -hmm. which will premiere at some point. That you know they they've had sort of their own series, and I guess for anyone who doesn't know the characters, you know they're two boys who died decades apart, and now their ghosts have become dead best friends who solve who solve crimes, and it's super simple. It's you know it's very much a twist on you know the Hardy Boys or Encyclopedia Brown and all those mm -hmm. kind of like boys mystery adventures that I loved growing up, and you know in, in in you know as the solicitation mentioned in my book they meet some other ghost kids they some other ghost kids who are Thai ghosts and they're thrust into some hardcore horror. And it's this place for me to bring sort of Thai mythology and Thai ghost mythology, which is really screwed up and really terrifying 
into the world of American uh, mythology and American pop culture and where better a place than Sandman, which has been a place where he has access all these different kinds of sort of mythologies. And the thing that I, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to sort of figure out is I did a book called Infidel in 2018. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my big horror book that kind of like put me on sort of the main stage. And I've kind of avoided doing what I call feature length horror since then. I'll do some short stories, but I haven't done like a horror book. And mm -hmm. partly it's been because, you know, Infidel was very much, uh, Infidel, I say, got a lot of credit for being very relevant to the times. And I did not know how to make horror relevant with everything that has been going on in this world, for the, the world for the past three years. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of through the Dead Boy Detectives, I found a way to me to make horror relevant again. And it was to sort of take the, the thing that I love about the boy, and I think it's not what I love, it's the appeal of the of Edwin and Charles, is, is their innocence and their idealism and, and, and sort of their flight of fancy that, that they sort of go on. But I want to bring that kind of back to its roots as like some really hardcore horror. Like I think one of the, the subsequent books kind of diverge from the fact that like, there's a lot of horror baked into the kind like these are two children, two 12, one 12, one 11, that were murdered by other children. And that's the whole basic premise of the thing. So it's super dark, but the story since then haven't really gone in that direction. So I kind of wanted to take it sort of back there. and. Mm -hmm. And in the process, I kind of found a way to make horror certainly more relevant for me, and we'll see, hopefully more relevant to to, to the readers, is, is this place of, okay, you've got, on the one hand, you've got this innocence and this idealism. This other hand, you have like this, this horror that you cannot deny is real. And what is the balance between the two that still sort of feels truthful? And to me, that was a way of, okay, like how does that hope and idealism exist without ignoring all the darkness that sort of around them and that to me was a way like oh i feel like this feels like a horror book that feels relevant now that i sort of see what the relevance of this this horror book is and and as a result you know i think like most of my project i'm i'm very worried at like how people will respond to it because i don't think i've seen a book uh that kind of hits all the notes in one single book that that we do in dead boy detective so i'm really really curious if people will go and, and you know i have to remind myself i feel this way for all my books um that that i i generally try to do things that i haven't quite seen and so but i'm very curious to see you know if the audience you know gravitates towards moves leans in or leans back uh, so i'm curious because the solicitation copy also mentions that you're using thessaly yeah who popped up at the final issue of the previous Sandman universe miniseries uh, from James Tarnian. Was that something where you were kind of given, oh, she's popping up at the end, so can you work her in, or you were going to work her in, and they backfilled it or so this is this is what i thought this is i think is super cool and and um and as fellow comic book geeks i i feel like you can relate with me on this is that a lot of times when you do these sort of tie-ins there's this thing of like you know oh did they tell you to do this or did you want to sort of do this and, and it's always kind of an either or kind of thing and and we hear a lot about like oh it's a spin-off that doesn't you don't need to read the main thing and all that kind of stuff so the thing that I think is super cool about this is this was a really personal story I wanted to tell for all the reasons I got into. And then just the fact of like, I got to bring in Thai mythology and I got to talk about being a Thai American, which is something I've always really wanted to do. So this was a book I would have done in a very different way, but the ideas I would have done in a sort of a creator own book anyway. Meanwhile, over in, in Nightmare Country, you've got James doing, if you're familiar with James's creator own work and I read all of them, so I am, you know, Nightmare Country is a book he would have done as a creator own book just, you know, without the Sandman universe to kind of do it. And, and, but he's telling a very personal personal story. So when I sort of pitched my thing, I had an idea of like, oh, and we could use this sort of thing. And then kind of happenstance happened where, you know, I got access to all the different things that James is doing. And I'd be like, oh my God, this thing that I wanted to do, I can actually use it to like take the ball from what you're doing, move it from point A to point B, it really affects my story. It really affects your story. But we're still telling these really personal stories. And I feel like that's kind of how crossover spinoff things are supposed to work in theory. But it never actually works. There's always like, oh, no, it feels like editorial told you to do this. Like, this is one of those cases. And I love talking about this because I feel like, I don't know, it just, it feels like those things, it's how it should happen, but it never actually happens that way. But it's just like, it, it just was fortuitous that like, 
there was a space where I needed, you know, I needed for a lack of a better word, because it's not entirely appropriate, like the right antagonist for the boys to kind of set everything in motion. And Thessaly isn't really the antagonist, but, but, but it fills a similar space there. And, um, and there was this space. And, and I think part of it too, might've been James had so many balls sort of th- thrown, being thrown in the air, but the fact that he was already, you know, playing on doing this thing, like if I hadn't written my book, that's his Thessaly issue would probably be exactly the same would be exactly the same but it just happened to be there I'm like oh my god this is so cool you know and then we talked about it like okay here's how I can give the time back to you and, and all that kind of stuff so it really does interact but you really don't need to read like I hopefully you know what I what we'll do in Dead Boys will will enrich your experience if you're uh, if you're reading Nightmare Country but like my whole story was baked without anything involving Nightmare Country. So it de- you can definitely sort of stand alone and read it too. So I'm really kind of like excited and geeked out about that because I feel like that's in theory how this, these things are supposed to work, but they never actually kind of work that way. It's, it's interesting with you, you know, bringing up the, the roots of boy adventure yeah. with them and Thessaly, who is such an inherently female character, who which is a type of character that's, doesn't have space in those kind of stories and seeing yeah. those two again and antagonistic or at least oppositional forces uh, interacting is the right way to say it yes which yeah. is we've because never seen not, in sandman with those yeah yeah and, characters yeah and, and not only that right not only is she a female force she's an ancient female force right so you have young versus old male versus female male versus female so you have a lot of i like that word you use oppositional force not necessarily antagonizing but oppositional so it it was sort of a very like i said it was a it was kind of this wonderful sort of fortuitous kind of thing and i give all i give you know neil credit for setting up a universe where you know you could do these sort of things it's open up you can do these things and james credit you know from just i think he's so used to working in a universe of himself that he really knows is very so gracious with you know how he you know gives you stories story elements to work with or work off of and when it comes to your art team Mm. were you you know oh, I've got this artist who I want to work with? Or was it a, Vertigo's like, here are some artists, and one of them is Jeff Stokely, and that's the guy. It, it was a little bit of both. They had some art, they gave me some artists. Um, I had I had an idea of like the kind of art that would work. And like, we both landed on like, oh, Jeff is the guy to do this. Jeff is, he can get the innocence of the characters and the animation, animatedness of the characters while also doing sort of horror sort of a, as well. And, and that and that was tough to find, you know? Um, you know, a, a lot of people who can do sort of the gruesome horror can't really do youthful characters. And people who do youthful characters can't like edge it up to do the horror. So, you know, we know, we knew we needed someone to do those two poles. And so, and so Jeff made, you know, Jeff was just was kind of the perfect choice because he has that sort of in his repertoire. And it was also exciting too, that his horror stuff was mostly cover work. So he hadn't really done it sequentially yet. So then we, we kind of had this extra jazz things like, oh, we kind of, in a sense, get to discover this aspect of Jeff or introduce this aspect of Jeff to, to readers. Because if you're, you know, if you see a couple of his covers here and there, you know, he can do it, but he's never actually done it in the context of the story before. And, uh, you know, he's he's definitely got a meal to play with. So, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Krasue, is that is that how it's pronounced? Uh, Krasue is how you pronounce it. Krasue. OK. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, I'm I was looking that up and and folks, uh, it's a the floating head of a woman with with her organs just sort of trailing trailing from it. That's got to be one of the coolest, grossest things to draw yeah. ever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's insane. It's, it's, and not only that, like, if you went through if it was just that and it appeared out of nowhere, the whole way they manifest is they manifest as a normal woman and their head just rips off their body and they trail their guts. Like, it's, it, it's crazy. And, and it also reminds me of, like, the things I love about Sandman, where, to me, there'd be all so much, like, fucked up, like, details in Sandman that you realize, mm-hmm. like, Neil just got from, like, folklore kind of thing. And so it, it's very much in that tradition where I'm not, there's no embellishment happening. Like that is, you can find that on Wikipedia. That is exactly what the, is a folktale. And that is the folktale that has been told. And it's, I just love, and there's a couple of that in the book itself, you know, through the course of the book where just really fucked up, like sort of old ghost stories that, um, that, yeah, that we're just kind of introducing and integrating into the Sandman world. 
I, I, I just, you know, I looked at some, some of the pictures online. I'm like, oh how God. has this not popped up in like, yeah. I don't know, a Bayonetta sequel or like yeah. Final Fantasy or I, something? <laughs> I, it's so crazy. It's so gruesome. It's so I'm, gruesome. I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's like my head. I'm like, there's got to be a Hellboy somewhere. Right. But it's like, I don't somewhere, think right? so. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's such a good horror creature, though. Our grand Twitter inquisitor, Asma Fangirl, wrote in to ask, uh, as someone who hasn't read any previous series or appearances of the Dead Boy Detectives, uh, with the exception of their origin in The Sandman, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on why they are uh, cult favorites for for fans and writers alike. I can tell you what I love about them, and it is just their their voices and their innocence. I think they, you know, they tap in, they, they, they tap, it, it, they very much are it's boys adventures for adults, I sort of feel like. So mm-hmm. it taps in all your memories of, because the characters themselves, you know, if you look at their stuff, like they don't go through many traditional, like, you know, mystery stories, certainly not in the way of Encyclopedia Brown or the Hardy Boys or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They're kids who are fans of that stuff. They're fans of Sherlock Holmes and Philip Marlowe. And then that informs everything they do. So it's a really easy access point of just kind of like, oh, you're just watching, you know, just like you are. They're fans of of, of all this stuff and, they're, and, they, and they go and they go about it. So I think it's just that sort of sense of whimsy that they're, they're such charming. They're such good hearted characters, too. There's that innocence and idealism that there's a purity of their soul. But I do think part of things that 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 is cool about them is they are so pure, but they're underlaid by this darkness you know they were they, again their roots are their two t- preteen kids that were murdered by other preteen kids in boarding school so like you know so you know that as 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 hopeful as they get you know there is there's this darkness about them that they sort of can't deny mm-hmm. and i think that's what i love ab- about about the characters it is always about this and I think as a result, their stories ended up being, or certainly like Sandman 25 was, was that for me. It was about like how this innocence and this idealism, uh, you know, perseveres regardless of the darkness that's sort of around them. And I think to me, that's what what I what I love about the characters. It's kind of like you know, if if the Hardy Boys take take that sort of horror pivot, you get the Dead Boy yeah. Detectives, and yeah. if the Hardy Boys take that comedy pivot, you get the Venture Brothers. Right. Yeah. 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 Totally. That's a great way of looking at it. Absolutely. And it, and even more, when you the additional horror aspect of the fact that they're introduced because theoretically they're damned because yeah. they come they appear because hell is closed and all the devils are free. Yeah. So you get that additional like if something you know goes wrong, these kids aren't going to heaven. They're yeah. going to be trapped down amongst the damned. Uh, yeah, I mean that's also like a brilliant sort of like choice by by Neil. Like Ed, because there was a different way to can play it. But Edwin, one of the coasts, has been to hell. He lived. He was in hell for forty years. So he has that darkness in his character, and he chooses to sort of you know be, sort of be innocent and, and and all that. So it's just there's so many conflicting things that don't where the the character and the concept doesn't collide collapse in on itself you know and so we can and i think that's part of what makes it sort of so so endearing that it that it kind of acknowledges both sides of the spectrum that way is there a particular joy returning or coming to the sandman universe because as you were saying before you started out working with you know one of the goat editors one of the you know karen berger Yeah, the, who is a legend amongst comic editors? Sure, there are, there are very few people who you could sit back and be like, "This as an editor, this person yeah. is a legend." But Karen Berger is hundred percent, hundred percent. No, no, it, it's weird. I don't know. I've been saying that I don't know if something can be both like nostalgic and an honor at the same time. But like, it that's kind of what this is like. It feels like I'm coming home. You know, it's it's material that I know. It brings back a lot of memories. You know, James was the intern at Vertigo while I was there, you know? Oh, wow. So, wow. like, so it brings back a lot of memories. Um, and, it, it, but at the same time, it is such an honor because it's the Sandman universe. It's Neil Gaiman. There's not that many writers who have written these these voices. And, the other ones who have are like Ed Brubaker and Jill Thompson, you know, like, you know, like, so they're very big shoes to fill. So, um, 
so yeah so no so it's both an honor and sort of nostalgic and it doesn't feel like you it feels like you would have to choose between those two in terms of like what you can describe something but it's kind of both for me which i which is has been awesome what is what is one thing that you learned from working under karen that you still carry with you oh my god uh god it is so hard to isolate uh it it like that um it is so hard to isolate it like that um because there's so i mean so much of how i approach everything is from uh what i picked up from karen um i it, it, it's two things that immediately pop up to mind one was i one was before i worked with her and it's the reason why i wanted to meet her was again we're fellow comics geeks here so we all remember it but there is a issue of saga the swamp thing i believe it's number 40 called the curse and it's about a woman who turns into a werewolf and and it's meant to be to to be an analogy between motherhood and and you know like lycanthropy and all that sort of stuff. And a couple issues later, in the letters page, you know, a letter kind of calls him to task and sort of saying, you know, well, what do you think you're saying when you say the only option for that werewolf was death? Are you sort of saying that the only option for women is is death? And Karen, there are tons of ways you can play that. You one way you can play is you don't you don't run that letter. But Karen mm -hmm. is really upfront, and she says in the letters page, and I was a fan reading this at the time. It's just like, you know what? Um, that's a really good point, and we need to be more think that uh, we need to be more thoughtful and stuff like that. Because one of the things, you know, I don't know if she has to say one of the things you don't realize, but the, but the gist of it is, when you open things up to political readings, you can't control how they read things politically. You know, you kind of just have to take so you you kind of have to game for all sort of scenarios. And that's what I don't know if that's sort of exact words, but that's kind of what I took away from her response. And I just remember that has been something that has sort of stuck with me of, of how one, how right that is, but also too the fact that she was as honest as she was with that response sort of in the letters page. And so that was something that before. And then the other thing is that like the great thing about Karen is that she doesn't really have an ego, even though she has every reason to have an ego. And so because of that, that is one of the reasons why I think she's as good an editor as she is, is the fact that, um, you know, it, as an editor, I've played this, I've, I've used this trick with writers, I've used this trick with artists, where you can play, the, you can be, you can talk about how great they are and all that sort of stuff, and you can use it to slide a note that you want them to do in if they're feeling a little, like, recipient. You can't do that with Karen. Like, Karen <laughs> table can isolate that piece of her and just focus on the task at hand. And, and that, um, and, 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 and that was the reason for her success. And that's something I've really kind of tried to uh, keep, that's definitely left an impression on me. I think anyone who's kind of dove, dived, dove, uh, one of those, one of those, uh, one of into those. Vertigo has that probably one or two books that are their touchstones. Mm. For me, as a lover of mythology and drama, it's it's Sandman. It's always been Sandman. Mm, yeah, yeah, Dan, who works in journalism, it's Transmet. Yeah. Uh, for you, what are your vertigo touchstones? First, that you know, the the big ones from you know your 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 Sandman, your Preacher, your Transmits, but also do you have a favorite of the more like obscure ones? Because you can dig deep into some of the vertigo and stumble across some stuff like John Rosam's Midnight Mass, which I yeah, I love, I love Midnight Mass, I love Midnight Mass. The part of the challenge for me is that because I know that world really well, none of them really feels like deep dives. They're all just kind of like, <laughs> you know, so like, like my first, uh, my first Vertigo book is the one that had the most impact on me was The Invisibles by Grant Morrison. Now, I don't know if that counts as a deep dive or not, because to me, that's up there with all the, with all the great ones, but it's not talked about as much, you know, but, uh, but The Invisibles was the first Vertigo book I, I read. Invisibles number 12, uh, Dead Man's Fall is one of my favorite single issues. So like, I, but that's that's up there with me with, with Sandman for sure. Uh, I've read that as many, about as many times as I, I've read Sandman. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there's other, you know, other little things that I love that just pop out every now and then. Like the first time Riso and Az work together on Johnny Double, like that's a, that's a great little book, you know? Um, what else? There are there are tons. I've, I mean, that mass is such a great book. Uh, this uh, Brubaker and Lark scene of the crime is also yeah, scene a of the favorite crime. of mine. That's that a great, great book. Yeah, 
great book. Um, I'm trying to think what else. You know, like, I mean, Sandman Mystery Theater is one of those ones that, like, not enough people talk about how great that is. Sandman Midnight Theater is so interesting because, like, if I'm, I could be wrong, I need to check it. I think, I think Wagner and Neil co-plotted that, but Neil actually does all the dialogue. And so it's such an interesting, like, you know, and, and, and the thing about Neil is that he does the best dialogue in comics. So you, I, what I remember from reading that comic the first time around is, it's this great thing of like, you just hear snippets of conversation as they're going through a party and it's the most interesting snippets like you've ever heard in your life. It's just so good. And it falls in such a perfect time in that series. Yeah. It's right before what is probably the best arc, the Phantom of the Fair. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point, good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, it, maybe, for, or maybe before The Mist. It's, it's right in that. I think it's before that... The Mist. Yeah, it's, it's right like... in there. It's there, right, because it's Midnight Theater, The Mist, then Phantom of the Fair. Yeah, yeah, but, okay, okay. Yeah, but I mean, it's then so you're right, you're tying it to James Robinson's Starman right yep. there. I mean, it's such an incredible book, and it's, as you said, it's a shame that it doesn't get talked yeah. about in in a, a breath with so many of the other Vertigo books from that sort of high classic era yeah and i think partly it's because it is such an outlier right because like oh wait these are jsa characters so you're like what you know you don't connect them sort of with the vertigo with the vertigo stuff you know because yeah sure the justice league pop up in salmon but it's such its own sort of thing but this is very much like in the roots of the dc universe it just carves out its own its own niche for it but yeah but I, that that book is great nevada is great by steve gerber and phil winslaid you know uh, but there's a ton of yeah, there's a ton of really really great great books out there. And just uh, similar to something that Asimov fangirl asked about, just to throw it in there. Aside from Sandman twenty five, okay, I assume there's you know you don't need to go even you probably don't even need Sandman twenty five if you've never if you don't have any of that frame of reference. You should be able to just go into your book yeah. without any of that. You don't and you don't need the the Brubaker or that no, no, yeah. ongoing. Well, uh, from what you said, maybe Children's Crusade, just because you want people to have read it. Again, that yeah, yeah. falls. I mean, I mean, like listen, the way the book is set up is you're meant to read it cold. Like you can read it cold. You don't need to know anything else. If you want to read more, like you can't go wrong by reading the ones that Neil wrote, right? You can't go wrong without re by reading Sandman Twenty Five or or Children's Children's Crusade. Like those, you know. Uh, my hope is to do something as good as what Neil did. So like, so, but, but it's set up that you don't need to read any of that and you can just kind of jump right on in. Does adding a supernatural horror element to a mystery add an element of a challenge to a more traditional mystery as something like the good Asian, which is a, yeah. a noir or is it six of one heads doesn't the other and you're just sort of adding an additional trapping to the mystery? It, it's hard to say because the good Asian and dead boy detectives are very, very different in this partly because the good Asian is sort of a noir story. It, you know, it, it, it works off of the, 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 the structure and the frameworks of, 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 and the signed goalposts of noir. If you look at dead boy detectives, the big difference is those characters are inspired by mysteries, but if you look at their actual adventures, they aren't—they aren't detectives in the traditional sense. I mean, they're ghosts. They, you know, they—they they can do all these other things. They go across, you know, they come across supernatural stuff all the time. So it—it's—it's it's almost like they're—it's—it's it's like an inside-out kind of thing where dead boy detective stories in general are not mister are not resemble mysteries because the characters interpret everything as if they're a mystery but what they actually are dealing with are just like oh this immortal this witch this all that stuff. so none of it really follows the rules of mysteries sort of anyway but they are so obsessed with mysteries they look at it all as if everything was a mystery like you know if you look at children's crusade i mean for all intents and purposes by the end of the first issue they go to another dimension like, you know, like it's completely nothing like a mystery, any kind of traditional mystery at all, but they just see everything as sort of mysteries. So um, so as a result, it, it's more just like taking this world with horror and humor and then it's them filtering it through their sort of mystery 
mystery lens is so so it's it's it ends up being a very different um it, you write it in a very different way now uh do you have any this is this is coming out the week between this this comic is coming out the uh, the week between christmas and new year's but you know do you have any like signings or appearances uh lined up to to mark the release Yes, yes, I do. I do. So I will be out on the uh, the East Coast for it. So I will. I'm really excited. I I've, I used to, I lived in New York for ten years, and so I shopped at Midtown Comics that entire ten years I was there. So I'm doing a signing at Midtown Comics on uh, the 30th of December, nice. and then the day of the well, not the day of the release, but the the I don't think any comics book comic stores do uh tuesday signings because they're trying to get to the wednesday comics so but the wednesday release i am actually i'm doing a uh a signing a third eye comics in annapolis in maryland and i've nice. heard so much about the store because i feel like literally every huge creator goes to third eye posts about how amazing it is they show pictures of this like kick-ass store and so i've always wanted to go so uh so it's nice to go there sort of as a signing i get to check out the store that like like everyone i feel like in comics like has fallen in love with oh yeah no, no people love third eye it's funny i you know my, my wife and i are vaguely planning a vacation in like virginia hmm. so okay. you know maybe i can convince him to take you know or <laughs> in maryland yeah <laughs> on, yeah on the way down i-95 <laughs> I'm really, I'm really, really excited about about that, and and yeah, and there might be, I might do some stock signings in LA before I leave. I think it's all going to depend on um, if the books come before my flight takes off, and then I <laughs> then I'll uh, then I'll go and sign sign some books first for some LA folks as well. There you go. That's great. That's great. Um, yeah, I mentioned I mentioned this on Twitter uh, not too long ago, but you know, one of the good things about doing this show is that it forces me to catch up on books that I haven't been able to read, uh, you know, otherwise just throughout the course of the year. So I finally read all of the good Asian this weekend um, deserves every bit of praise it got, uh, you. you know, congratulations on, on that. Uh, I, I kind of jokes cause you're, you know, the book released, you know, in 2021, 2022, and you know, it made year it's, it's, it's made year end best of lists both years. And yeah. I was thinking of that episode of the Simpsons where Mickey Rooney goes to talk to Millhouse when they're filming the radioactive man movie. And he says, I was the number one box office draw of 1939 and 1940. And Bart yells, Whoa, spanning two decades. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Just the 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 same vibe, but uh, you know, are are you? How often do you have to dust your your Eisner and Harvey's? Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it probably more probably more than I do because I don't <laughs> because it just sits in like a corner of a in a corner of the room. Um, so I probably should dust them. I probably there's actually a lot of my room. I should probably my office. I should probably dust. Not That's just, all of us. That's order. all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, no, the, that was really cool. Getting those awards are really, really cool. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, like I joked about it at the awards ceremony, but it's true. I think that means I've, I've peaked now. There's like, I don't like it's not going to get that good for after that. Like it's a once in a career kind of thing. So I'm just going just gonna, to like live off it for a little bit. That feels like reverse jinxing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> like You just gave yourself an Eisner next July. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that for you. Uh, you know, I I, I did want to know because this it's such a you know history rich book. How long were you sort of in research mode before you started scripting? It's I I can definitely say it was years. I can definitely say it was plural. But I think that makes it sound like I spent years like huddled over books, like you know from nine to five and all that kind in of in a stuff. library shushing people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it was a. I mean, I think I came up with the idea idea around 2016 and then on my off hours i would do research and and all that so like so you know so from conception to the book you know i pitched the book in 2020 the book came out in 2021 you know so it was like four or five years of just like sort of sitting there but you know um and a lot of research happened in the background as i was working on other projects uh so i can say that the process took years but that can be misleading because it when you say that it makes you think it was like my full time thing during mm -hmm. during those during those years. 
you know, and and this is this is a serious book about a, a serious subject, anti-Asian racism in 1930s mm-hmm. San Francisco. But it's also working in the, the conventions of a classic detective noir. So that means you get to do old timey grizzled detective speak. I have to imagine that could be considered, you know, the fun part of, again, a book that was not a comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a tricky noir speak is so very tricky because if you lean too hard on if you get too influenced by Chan, Chandler sure. and Philip Marlowe, then it turns into self-parody really yeah. quickly. And so it, it becomes a little bit of a thing of like what it, you know, what is the right percentage to sort of dabble in? And mm-hmm. for me, the voice, it the voice made more sense to look at something like the Continental Op by Dashiell Hammett than Raymond Chandler from Philip Marlowe, because Marlowe's Marlowe's speech and Chandler's writing is so unique and so distinctive. I just watched Double Indemnity recently, and it's so you can see Chandler all over, you know, all mm-hmm. over the place in, in that script. Um, uh, which, but, but like, you know, but then you watch like Sunset Boulevard and that's a Billy Wilder script right there. And so, um, and so, so for me, Hammett, and it fit the character too. There was a leanness to the prose mm-hmm. where, you know, there wasn't, there was slang used because that was the character, because that was a character, but there wasn't that much of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it was more to me of a template on how to, to, to use that. And, and one of the things I found about doing period speak is that, it's not, I think it's the temptation to, when you're doing period talk is to use terms that like nobody uses anymore. Like, ah, he's a glad handler or something like that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and one of the things that uh, it, I actually think it, it's more, it's just more just like, um, it's more about taking words that you know that you just don't really use anymore. So a character might say, oh yeah, it's, it's a cinch. Like we all know what it's a cinch means. When's the last time any of us actually said it? You know, so like, it's like, it, it's it's a little bit more that than, than 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 anything else, and that was a the thing to, that I sort of you know tried to be careful about. Mm-hmm. Did you did you walk away you know having digested a lot of that stuff? Obviously, uh, you know, any with any sort of new favorite pieces of of media from that era? Oh God! Oh, so much, so much. Um, you know, I, I mean, I just recently watched Sunset Boulevard and fell fell in love with that again. It's so good. Um, you know, uh, Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett, you know, I love that, um, uh, Farewell My Lovely, you know, the, the, the second Philip Marlowe book, um, what else, what else? I mean, like a bunch of the Hammett, the Continental Op short stories, I loved, it, it definitely, Ross McDonald was later on down, down, down the line historically. So I would read that for fun and wish I could read more, but I'm just like, ah, it's 50s detective. It doesn't really, it doesn't really have enough to do with it anymore. Mm-hmm. So and I tried to stick around like thirties, you know, thirties and forties sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, but it, but it did, it, it really, it just got me wanting to read more. It got me reading a lot more noir and it was a great way. Uh, you know, I think it was a thing where the pandemic, um, uh, you know, you turn your bugs into a feature, I suppose, like, you know, with the pandemic, I was sort of indoors, I was, uh, I was living sort of with my mother at the time, because I sort of brought her into my place to live with. And so the stuff I could watch was, I couldn't watch as much as I usually would watch. And so as a result, it gave me a lot of time to read. And so I was reading what I thought would be a bunch of a research period, and then writing the book, I was reading so many of those books, while I was writing The Good Asian. Uh, partly out of fu- you know out of fun and pleasure, and also because like I couldn't leave the house anyway, so like it was just it was a great way to spend spend time. So uh, so yeah, so so many of that stuff, so many of that stuff, like you know reading reading the Devil with a Blue Dress again, um, watching Lady from Shanghai again. So yeah, so, so yeah, all so much of that stuff they brought back. I I got to re-experience. Is there a world where the stereotypical Asian characters created in those periods and earlier, I mean, Fu Manchu is an earlier character, but Charlie Chan is from that period. Is there a way that those characters can be redeemed and reimagined in a modern setting or is it a modern setting, but a modern lens set, whatever, or is it a point where those characters are so have that, racism and that stereotype so deeply baked in that it might be better to just sort of 
leave them aside and craft new characters in the appropriate period. I, uh, so I, and I, everyone has a different perspective on this. And I also think not all characters are the same. So, but I, my starting point is any character is redeemable. Like, you know, like the gay ghost might have a little bit of an uphill climb, you, you know? Um, but like, but like I start, like, you know, you could, I hope no one does. And hopefully the book is done well enough that if anyone tries, they will, someone will call them out on it. But you could do a Charlie Chan reboot or a Charlie Chan reimagining that's basically the good Asian. You know, like I based enough from the same inspiration points that Charlie Chan was based off that they share enough of a DNA. Mm -hmm. Like you could do a Charlie Chan. I hope no one does, but you could do a Charlie Chan movie or book series or television show. That's literally just a good Asian with all the names changed. And like, you know, like uh, it was all we're all working off the same archetype. So I think you can. It's just about how you handle it. That might not be one size fits all. That I'm, like I said, like the gay ghost might have a little bit of a uphill climb, um, but uh, Captain Nazi, you know, maybe not the, you know, maybe 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 not not the most redeemable character, but um, but I do think that uh, so where I start is you know every character can be redeemed, and then you kind of look into sort of like the history of the particulars to sort of see how thorny thorny they are. But but I do think a lot of these guys, like you know, I think you can re redeem Fu Manchu. I think you can redeem, you know. Um, in a lot of ways, like they have, like you know, Shang Chi is was created as a son of Fu Manchu, mm -hmm. and a Shang Chi book is still out there, and a Shang Chi movie is is out there, and so that's one avenue of reclaiming sort of the 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 the, the mythology of Fu Manchu. When it came to the Good Asian, as structurally, yeah, did you build it with the act break? in the middle for the two trades or was this sort of a story that grew in the telling or was it just like, okay, well, isn't that convenient? That this breaks <laughs> nicely. I, first of all, I'm very happy that you think it, very, very grateful. You think it breaks nicely. Um, it was always conceived as sort of one thing. And, and, and to be honest, we went back and forth of is, is issue four, issue five, like the best sort of break. Um, and and so so it wasn't uh so it wasn't necessarily always considered like oh issue four is definitely I mean it, in fact when I originally wrote it it was meant to be all collected in one trade mm -hmm. and what happened was you know with COVID and so the the rise in anti Asian sort of sentiment we felt the need to put something out sooner that talked about all this and that we didn't want to wait like the extra year to to have something that talked about all this stuff that was happening so so that was a little bit of a a game day decision to sort of break to to break it up and 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 yeah so i'm glad that you think that the, the break is good because there's a part of me that wonders like oh i don't know like like yeah i'm never i'm no, still not quite sure one thing i was curious about was you know and of course jeff powell's not in the room here but the um the ballooning at a certain point i realized there was a switch in certain scenes from you know your standard balloon were balloons to uh rectangular were yeah, balloons yeah. and and you know my first instinct was like well maybe this scene is a flashback no this this scene is in present tense that scene's a flashback and that scene is using a mix of rectangle balloons and you know uh standard balloons because the 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 yan brothers are, are speaking in the rectangle balloons but then victoria comes through the fence and she's using standard balloons and i'm trying to do the math and and, and see the patterns like that guy in aronofsky's pie and uh <laughs> but i uh, you know i i was kind of wondering if that was something that 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 you know you and you and jeff kind of talked talked about in terms of you know patterns and, and deviating from from standard ballooning in that way yeah, yeah, yeah. So part of that is, and 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 the, and the fact that you had to do this math made me made, made me think like, oh, maybe we need to be clear about that then. Oh, that um, is not a criticism, by the way. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's just um, me wanting to know more. No, 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 totally. So the way we looked at it is, anytime the characters are in the rectangular balloons, they're speaking Cantonese, and so the circular balloons are are, are English. And okay. so, um, and, and so, and that came from. I had always found the the brackets that had become like standard as kind of clumsy and not as efficient as it could be. So okay. I had talked about with uh, Jeff, like, what about using like a different font or something like that? And Jeff kind of went up me and says, like, actually, why don't we make it 
uh, just a different sort of uh, a, a style of balloon. And one of the things that I think that is done, and it sounds like that this was the case for you as well, is you sublimate, even if you don't follow, like that's what it was mean, you sublimely understand that there's a different type of communication that's sort of happening there. And mm -hmm. that's really sort of the main thing we, that, 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 that we want to get, that there is sort of this different, different type of communication that's happening there that between these, between these characters. You okay. read the trades, right, Dan? Yes, I did. Yeah. Cause that was on the inside front cover of the floppies. Yeah. 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 On the recaps, they had, they it had the indication that square boxes indicated Cantonese. Oh, it, I it is, it, there it is <laughs> yeah 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 it, it's there it's funny it, one of the trick with the trades is because i actually feel like the dirty little secret is um i don't know if it's more fun to read in the floppies but like it's a different experience because there's a recap on the, the page you kind of get like a for lack of a better word a scorecard chapter by chapter as you're reading it that kind of helps you along so it, it does sort of help you remind you so like so I think we do do like the, we do a note by the cap, the Cantonese, but it's only once in the very beginning of the book. And then you've got like a hundred pages in and you're just like, wait, and, it's, and especially if like, you know, if you put the book down a little bit, then you're like that, then you can, you've probably forgotten it. But, uh, but yeah, but yeah, it is, uh, it is one of the things that we sort of, we, we, we sort of play with and, and, uh, and yeah, it, it's, it, I, I, I think a lot about the, 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 the story so far pages is specifically because I know when I read like some of the pulp the, the pulp noirs like i wish i had a scorecard as i'm like you know going through all that sort of stuff and mm -hmm. so there's a bit of me of like because it's serialized it gives you an excuse to like oh you have one handy but i remember thinking that as we were doing the trades like it's kind of cheating to put it at the beginning of every chapter but at the same time like i know if i was you know when i'm reading a ross mcdonald novel like i kind of wish i did have like a scorecard at the beginning of every chapter uh no no that that that's good and and you know speaking as as a fan of recap pages yes every comic should yeah, yeah. Uh, should have it also it also speaks to how i guess inured i am as you know a, a longtime marvel reader that i was looking for the brackets and the little asterisk that said translated yeah, yeah, from yeah, cantonese yeah. you know yeah. edit in eddie or whatever right 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 <laughs> oh boy but uh you know so the yeah the second the second trade which Again, Matt, you're right, did include that note about Cantonese in the very beginning. Uh, includes the original pitch document for the series. Yeah. What is what is the biggest change that you made from that initial outline that you feel benefited the story? I don't know if it benefited the story, but all of the names have changed. But like, I don't know what it is. Like, I, I, like when I was with that doc, it's slightly embarrassing that with the exception of Edison Hark, not a single name remains the same in that document. To the point I was worried it was going to be very confusing. Um, so I don't know if it made it better, but that was a, definitely the change that jumped out to me. It was just like how I apparently none of those names were good enough for me by the time like the, the book came to print. Um, <laughs> I think I'm trying to remember because it blurs to such a degree. I can't remember like what was in the original pitch and what changed later. Um, I... There were definitely, I think, Terrence's sexuality became more nuanced, mm -hmm. going from pitch to to sort of uh, to to uh, to script. I feel like I feel like if I could be wrong about it, um, originally Terrence was more bisexual. In when I couldn't conceive him in the pitch. And then I realized the more I was digging into it that that didn't make sense for the time and the pressure that he was going through as and that he would probably be more gay. And that certainly changed his relationship with Victor with Victoria. Um uh yeah, like I don't because of the pressure at the time, I don't think if he had the option to be with women, I don't think he would have chosen to be with men, you know, uh, or experiment with men mm -hmm. um because of the sort of the pressure of him being Chinese at the uh, you know, and 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 not straight at that at that time. Um, I think those were one of sort of the biggest sort of chain changes on it. Uh, I, there's a part of me that I've glanced through that document, especially since having it printed many times. But I haven't actually reread it, terrified of how much would it has changed and how embarrassing it will look to to have that in there. There's there's an interesting spectrum that the book presents because. 
Chang and uh, Terrence Chang and, and Silas Woodward are in their own ways these these kind of cracked mirror versions of Edison yeah. Hark, you know, versions of himself he could have become if he had chosen to lead more toward. On one hand, his inf influence growing up as the adoptive son of a wealthy white family, or on the other hand, his anger. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I mean, obviously, especially in the second book, it's just that that stands out so strongly. And then when you get to the, the editor's note, I think a after the fact that refers to Terrence Chang as Obama ask, I'm like, Oh, this is all, this is all clicking <laughs> into place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, o Obama's uh, first book um, letters to my father, I think is the name of his first memoir. Uh, that was, that was one of the books I read as I was trying to sort of like shape, um, shape, uh, whatchamacallit. Um, uh, Edison's Hark's, Hark's character uh, and just you know I mean he's you read that book and you realize like what an amazing one what an amazing man he is but also like like what an amazing writer the man is uh, as well and so and there's so much inside I mean there's all the qualities of a great of a great writer is in is in his work and especially in that first uh, in that first memoir where maybe he didn't have the it, he or he hadn't settled upon his ambitions yet to be president um, and so it became a really great character study and and i took a lot of what i learned from that from him and and hit in that book and brought it over to edison and warps definitely warped at certain aspects of it but but mm -hmm. it, it, it 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 was very educational it's you know probably too early to to but is there any teasing of the return of edison hark that you might be able to do so i'm definitely there definitely is a sequel uh image has greenlit it what it comes down to now is how long it will take me to write it. Um, it uh, the 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 bar, unfortunately, I set for myself is uh, it needs to. I I think people will be disappointed if we lower the bar for for the sequel. And so the bar for the first one is always it's got to sit alongside history, and it's got to be a noir mystery that works but doesn't contradict. It's got to fill in the gaps between what's historical fact without contradicting historical fact. And as a result, that means I got to know a lot about historical fact in order to do it. So um, so I know me and Alex have talked a lot about the second book. I know what it's about. I know the story. I actually know the general story. Um, what I now need to do or what I should say I've been doing is the research to fill in sort of the gaps. And and part of the thing that that has actually and, and I, I think that I might have had a breakthrough here. But for a while, part of the challenge was um, one of the main tenants that the sequel is based on, I found out might have been a lie. But um, and I can't find any any history books to back it up. But I think I've started to find I'm on a path to I think that maybe it wasn't a lie after all. And there are some like instances that this was actually the case, which will make my life a lot easier because uh, yeah, <laughs> it, that that the 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 uh, the 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 goal line looked much farther away when as I was doing research and I found out like the the thing the the. The thing I had read that I was basing the story on never happened, and then I was like, "Oh, now I don't know how to make the story work." Then, but um, but it seems like it maybe it did. So I'm I'm in the process of like trying to verify all that, and then in my life will hopefully get a lot easier. So uh, there's there's a deluxe hardcover edition of the whole series coming out next year. Uh, the the books already had a healthy amount of you know back matter and and bonus goodies. You know what do you what are you looking at for the big boy volume? Oh God, there's some cool stuff. Uh. I don't think I've ever talked about this before. Um, one of the things we're doing, because I'm a geek about this stuff, is it's got, I think this is true, it's got all the back matter that the trades have. Um, on top of that, it's got um, a bunch of the, I don't want to say rejected, because we didn't really reject them, but the unused cover sketches from like all the different sort of like cover, variant cover artists. So you get to sort of watch their process. You got to see like the four different sketches that Sana, or the, the in total four different sketches that Sana Takeda did for her cover, you get to do the two alternate covers that David Cho had sort of presented when he did his cover. Um, there's other, there's a bunch of sort of other sketches that are sort of in there. There's some uh, character sketches that I think that I think are thrown in there as well that I don't think have been used before. Um, oh, uh, we we there's a little bit of a gallery showing uh, the uh, the kind of the retailer exclusives. Um, 
retail scooter covers. So there's a lot of that. I, I'm a sucker for art and covers. So there's a lot of like stuff based on covers that are, that are sort of in there. And I want to say there's other stuff too, but I'm, I'm blanking on it now. But yeah, but hopefully there is stuff that, there's definitely stuff there that you won't find in, uh, in, in any of the, the, the previous editions so, so far. Awesome. Yeah. No, I love a good cover gallery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, uh, also this past year, you got to write a ho- sort of horrors of 2020 story for your installment <laughs> of uh, Michael Walsh's Silver Coin. Yeah. Uh, murder and mystic money aside, how <laughs> closely did that hue to your actual experience in the oh, worst year ever? <laughs> it is. It's a really, really, really good question. Um, I was not dating, nor did I break up with anyone okay. it, it, dur- during COVID. I did go through kind of a breakup with a best friend that cut, sort of coming out of that time. So a lot of a lot of the spirit of that kind of came from from uh, worked into that. And um, and uh, and what I hoped a lot of the events, not maybe not necessarily what the characters were going through, but um, but like the events, I kind of cherry picked them to sort of be hopefully parts of that year of lockdown that we all found memorable yeah. or, or, or not memorable might be the wrong word, but we had a hard, we'll have a hard time forgetting. I'll always cherish um, scrubbing those groceries down. Yeah, you know, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's also a little bit of an in-joke amongst my friends how much I pulled from everybody's lives to like throw it into the thing. So much mm-hmm. so that like every name, is this true? With the exception of one, Every name in that in that comic is a name from someone I'm like hey, I know in LA and and, mm-hmm. and and all that kind of stuff. So so yeah, the, uh, the Silver Queen's a special animal because it's it's Michael Walsh's baby and he has these you know sort of overarching elements that he's working with, but he's also bringing in a different writer each month to tell their own story within that framework. You know, given all that, you know, how different was scripting for this say? an issue of the good Asian, you know, like were there certain notes that were already there that you kind of had to play with slash around slash through. I mean, the awesome thing about working with Michael, especially on the silver coin is he's so open to everything. And so, so, so it made that very easy. And he's just kind of like, you can use whatever you want in mythology. You don't have to use whatever you want with the mythology. And I was the one that was kind of like, can you tell me more about that? Cause I like to work a little something in there. I think mm-hmm. it'd be more fun, you know? Uh, I like the I, I for that particular story. I liked it to be sort of this very intimate story, but there's like a little bit there where we open a door into like the bigger mythology, and so I wanted to know what is it mythology was, so we could open that door and maybe advance that story just a tiny, tiny, an, an incremental mm-hmm. bit. Um, so, so that so that aspect of it is just wonderful. Um, the other thing too is I was talking about it with a friend. It's just like it feels like if you want to be a kick-ass like comic book artist. You just need to start off influenced by David Mazzucchelli. Like, it feels like all of them, like Michael Watts, Walsh, Cliff Chang, Jorge Fornes. Like, if you look at early on the career, they're all like, oh, this is like very David Mazzucchelli. And they all graduate to be like some of the best artists in comics. And so um, and so that was like the thing for me of like working with working with Michael is just kind of like and, and that process was so, so fun because I had some ideas. And I honestly want to say like so many of my ideas was like, the night before, I'm like, oh, I know what it'll, you know, it, it'll be like, it, like you have this thing when you go to sleep and you're like, oh, I got to call with Michael tomorrow. I don't have anything to talk about. And then you're like, oh, wait, maybe we'll do this thing. And then you talk to him about it and he like bounces back and forth. And you talk about, oh, well, if you do this, then, you know, this will be really fun and this will be really fun. And um, yeah, it's just, a, it's such a dream kind of like working with him. It's excellent. It's excellent. Uh, penultimate question. What are you reading right now? Oh God. All right. What am I reading right now? Uh, I'm reading Douglas Rushkoff's, uh, I, technically I'm listening to it, I guess. Uh, my, my, my audio book as I drive and as I run is, uh, Douglas Rushkoff's, uh, survival of the billionaires. Mm. Um, and which is, which is great reading. I, I'm a big Rushkoff fan and his book, uh, throwing rocks at the Google bus, how, uh, how we prioritized, um, uh, uh, growth over prosperity is like one of like my go-to sort of texts as I think about life. Um, and so that's, that's what I'm reading on the nonfiction side. Um, on the fiction side. Oh, I just started the first issue of do a power bomb. And so, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I love, I, yeah, I'm loving that. Um, 
what did I just wrap up? I just wrapped, I just, what did I just finish reading? I, oh, I just, I just got caught up on uh, Tom Taylor's uh, Superman Son of Kal-El, which is like, this is like one of the best ongoing in continuity Superman. But like, I think Jonathan Kent is such a brilliant creation. And so I, yeah, so I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that book. I, I, um, I think I started reading it as sort of a curiosity and I'm just like, mm-hmm. I can't, Superman, I, Superman shouldn't be a tough character, right? But I think a lot of people find him a tough character, right? And, uh, and, and Tom Taylor's just like, knocking out of the park on that book i'm so um i've heard really good things about philip kennedy johnson's book as well i just haven't gotten around to reading it yet um but uh but yeah but yeah but um the, the, the superman son of cali just caught got caught up and was just blown away by it excellent well uh course like this has been a fantastic uh hour and change uh final question before we release you back into the world uh, yeah. how can people follow you online and, and keep up with dead boy detectives and everything else that you've got going on and coming up yeah, so on Twitter, as much as Twitter is a thing, for however long Twitter is a thing, <laughs> yeah. uh, I am a real underscore porn sack. On Instagram, I am uh, real underscore PSAC because, because small note, Instagram will not let you have porn in your in your handle tab. And um, and and if Hive comes back, I'm just at porn sack. So we'll see if that ends up becoming a thing. We're at this very weird time where it's just like, ooh, what are any of our handles? Like, how much of this will exist? If you go to Hive, it's just the blue circle still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I keep getting alerts of like, hey, come back. Or like, should I know? Uh, so, <laughs> so, so we'll see. All right. Well, Pornstock, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. This has been really fun. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection, a $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete. A deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Cap Purcell, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, Pete Wisdom was actually the first character to ever say, to me, my X-Men. WMQA.